I know that racism is a very sensitive topic. Okay, we can all agree on that. But now more than ever, it is a topic that must be talked about. We have received some overwhelming responses from the women's panel that I facilitated slash participated in on August the 11th. I am just blown away with the responses that people have shared with me. They've reached out to me via email, on Facebook, text messages, calling, different things like that, just to say how much that discussion was needed and how much value they got out of the discussion. If you have not seen it, I encourage you to go back to my page to view it, or you can listen to the audio on my website, which is www.spwhitaker.com. Now, tonight, I want to tell you right now that you are in for some great discussion. I have some amazing men with me who have been building very successful careers. But while they have been rising the, to the leadership ranks in their respective organizations, it has not come without challenges. So my hope for tonight is that by the time we finish this panel discussion, that we all will have a deeper understanding of these challenges and we're able to take something away from the discussion that we all collectively, that we all can step away, step up to the plate to combat racism in corporate America. So I have said this before and I will continue to say it, regardless of race, color, creed, male or female, we all have a role to play. If we ever want to invoke real change in racism in any environment. So with that said, I am S.P. Whitaker. I said this before, some of you know me as Cherie, some of you know me as Paulette, but on this platform, I am S.P. Whitaker and I will be facilitating this great discussion tonight. So just a little bit about my background. I have over 30 years of experience in the IT and engineering field. Of those 30 years, 10 were spent serving my country in the Air Force. I have built a successful career leading people in this area across multiple industries. I am currently the director of cloud and software governance for a major legal software development company. And now I want you to hear from our fantastic panel. So I will start with Brian Kennedy. Please introduce yourself. Hello, thank you. And thanks to everybody for joining. Um, my name is Brian Kennedy. And um, I currently work for a legal technology company that specializes in providing uh, data and also technical tools for attorneys and, and uh, government workers to, to do their work. Um, I am an attorney myself. Um, I graduated from law school a while ago. Uh, and I've been with the same company for 28 years. So I graduated from law school 29, 29 years ago, worked one year in the field and uh, began working for this company uh, for 28 years. And, um, and I've seen a lot of things. So I did not know that about you, that you were an attorney. I did not know that. So <laughs> acknowledge that. Great, great. So now we have Marcus Whitaker. Would you please introduce yourself? Sure. My name is Marcus Whitaker. Uh, I reside in Nash County, North Carolina. Uh, we, we have uh, two homes, so I have a unique perspective of I actually leave and I drive four hours uh, to go to work. So uh, my, my week is usually spent in Northern Virginia, uh, Chantilly. Uh, I work for a technology bar, uh, which is a value-added reseller. Uh, we essentially buy products, customize them, and install. Uh, we work in what we call uh, infrastructure as a service, 
as well as platform as a service and software as a service. Uh, we are a full service boutique. Uh, we are a subsidiary of a top 50 company. Uh, our company actually provides a particular niche part of the business. Uh, I've been in this business about 25 years. Uh, it's, it's truly been my calling. Uh, similar to USP, I started my career in the Marine Corps. Uh, I, I learned everything that I think I know now. Uh, interesting enough, I didn't think in the beginning it would work out so well, but it's actually been a, been a pleasure. So Marcus Whitaker. That's great. Thank you so much, Marcus. I appreciate that, fellow vet. So Dr. William Wright, would you please introduce yourself? I'm William Wright. I am the superintendent of Perfect County Public Schools in Northeastern North Carolina. Um, I had to count up today, uh, so I, I thought I would probably be asked this. This is my 23rd year in education full time. Um, I've served as a teacher, um, assistant principal, principal, assistant superintendent, and this is actually my eighth year uh, as a school superintendent. Wow. Marcus mentioned that he's from Nash County. Um, I was raised in Nash County and worked in Nash County schools. So I'm trying to figure out if I taught Marcus at some point. I probably <laughs> didn't, but uh, I may have. But anyway, uh, excited to be a part of this. Uh, Brian Kennedy is my line brother. Um, so uh, he summoned me to be a part of this, and I'm excited about this opportunity to, to share. Uh, certainly in 23 years in education um, as an African-American male, um, I've seen a lot. Uh, so. Yes. And learning as well. Yes. Thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Now, Marcus Whitaker and I are not related. I know we have the same last name, but we used to live in Nash County. My husband's from Nash County. So we'll have to talk afterwards because I'm sure there's a connection somewhere. Thank you so much. And next we have Dr. Ryan Urquhart. Would you please introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Ryan Urquhart. I am an engineer. Um, My PhD master's, undergrad master's and PhD industrial systems engineering, and I've been working in the field of software development for 18 and a half years, one time for an IT then for an insurance company, and also I am an adjunct professor um, at the university. <clears throat> I've been doing that for roughly eight or nine years, I think, yeah. So I've been balancing both worlds, um, university as well as corporate America. Wow. So you, you, you gentlemen may make me have to come back and do something regarding the education system because this is, this is really good. What a coincidence. This is great. So I told you we have a great panel of men tonight to, 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 build, to help with this discussion. So I'm excited about what we're about to get into next. So I want to go over some statistics first. Harvard Business Reviews titled Black Professional Men Describe What It's Like to Be in the Gender Majority, but the Racial Minority. It's no secret that Black people are widely underrepresented in the highest status professional jobs. Even when they have Harvard MBAs, Black women are generally absent in leadership positions at most Fortune 500 companies, and Black men are in high-ranking roles in only a handful when in fact 10% of college graduates are black. Another statistic, Fortune Magazine posted an article titled, Working While Black, Stories from Black Corporate America. Only 3.2% of executives and senior manager level employees are black. I'm gonna read that again. 
only 3.2% of executives and senior manager level employees are black. Only five, now four, Fortune 500 CEOs are black. In total, there have only been 18 black CEOs on the Fortune 500 list since 1999. Black men are paid 13% less than white men. Black women are paid 39% less than white men and 21% less than white women, according to another study. They ask for promotions and raises at about the same rate, but get worse results. Yes, the numbers are shocking. I don't know if they were shocking to you as they were to me when I was reading them. And the numbers are not in proportion. And so what I wanna ask you now is to share with us one or two experiences of racism that you have personally experienced in your career. Now, we don't have to name names or anything like that, right? But, cause we know how to keep it professional. But I want you to share with us one or two experiences where you personally experienced racism. And I'll start with Brian. Brian, could you please share? Sure. Um, um, I, I can think of several situations, but the one thing I can tell you is that when, when you first, when I first experienced, my first reaction is denial. It's like, this isn't happening because of my race, is it? And it's hard for me to I, I try to give people the benefit of the doubt, but, but eventually I see it coming around. I've seen it where I've, I've been in the company. When I first started, I first started as a legal analyst. My current position now is director of government content. Um, when I first started, I was a legal analyst. And I remember having people that weren't even uh, in law school or didn't even, they were regular editors and they would come in and take some time off and go to law school, come back three day, three years later and get a promotion over me. And and first I was, I was thinking it was my work and then I came to the realization it was, it was a racial bias that someone had. Um, I can also think as a director, when I became a director, I don't know if this is racism or it's racism. Uh, I've had a manager or a VP um, come to me with a suggestion that uh, when we have our company picnic, that uh, the three directors get pinatas and put our faces on the pinatas and hang them from the rafter and so that the employees can hit them with a stick in order for to increase morale. So the first thing I thought was like, you're not hanging me from anywhere, you know? Right. And, and not only because it was bad to happen, I, I'd had to answer to all, all the African-Americans that worked there saying, why did you let them do that? So I'd, I had I'd told him and, and he did not understand. And I just had to put my foot down and said, no, it, it just can't happen. So wow. those, are two, those are two quick examples. Wow. Mm, Dr. Dr. Wright. Uh, mine um, re really quickly stem around the two principalships that I held. So everybody kind of know where I'm talking about, but that's okay. Uh, the first one, um, I was the first and am still the only African-American principal of that school. So if you ever go there, you go in, you go in, the, uh, in the building, there are pictures of everybody. I'm the only black face there. So that's the wow. first 
But um, at particular school, really quickly, um, I had been there maybe two or three weeks, and uh, I had an African-American female assistant principal also. I learned very quickly that um, there was a petition started by um, white parents uh, that my removal, uh, and, and basically it was around the uh, around the whole premise of you know we can't have two African Americans uh, working to lead our children, um, and uh, my initial reaction, of course, was you know to my superintendent uh, who was white and who had entrusted you know, let me respond to them, you know, give me a list of their concerns. And uh, cause this was a whole drawn out document and I'll respond, you know, I, I want to respond. And, you know, his advice was, no, you can't do that. You know, I can't let you do that because if you do that, then um, it, it'll turn ugly. Let me respond on your behalf and, and so forth and so on. Um, and, 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 you know, the, the short, short end of that story is um, it, it was tough in the beginning because every move I made, every suspension decision I made, um, every teacher I hired was scrutinized. Uh, by the time I left there, it, it was really a good experience, and I at least think I gained the respect of uh, both white and black communities. It, it was um, in Macclesfield, North Carolina area, for people that know that it's a very – very racially charged area that was kind of tough back then, uh, but but it became okay. Um, and then my high school, uh, I was the second African-American principal there, which is still also the case. There's not been, not been one since. Um, and there, um, that school had a student population of about 70% white students. My middle school was 50-50. And so uh, that, that, of course, had its own challenges. And I was prejudged because of the issues with, quote, unquote, the first black super, black principal. So um, in, in both of those cases, uh, it was an opportunity for me to go in and, um, and show leadership, not as a person of color, but true good leadership that helped get me to where uh, we needed to be. But it was not without its challenges. So, um, those are probably my my two most glaring examples. Like we could give them all. My all was can, I'm sure. But absolutely, thank you so much for sharing that. Wow, yeah. uh, Marcus Whitaker, could you could you share one or two of your experiences of racism? I, th I think for me, uh, I'll go back to uh, I'm out of the Marine Corps. I I've done my time, my six years. Uh, I've graduated. Um, I've completed a mentorship program. And it's my first day in my new role as a staff engineer. And I was recruited and hired, but my peers, back then we didn't have a uh, Zoom. And so my peers were meeting me for the first time and their expectation was Mark, M-A-R-C, Whitaker. And Mark Whitaker was coming in as a staff engineer with all of these uh, degrees and, and these uh, certificates. And I was coming in with a strong military background and I was coming to work and I showed up. And it, it was amazing when Mark Whitaker showed up as Mark Whitaker, the only degreed engineer. Now I'm on a team with 
30 engineers, but there was probably only two of them that had degrees in computer science and electrical engineering. And we were a technology company. And so you can imagine over the next 12, 13 years, how many times my carrot was moved um, as I had opportunity to grow and mature. Um, I'll say that, but I'll tell you the most challenging part uh, that I found, and I don't know if I can call this, this I don't know what to call this part, uh, but as I went up the ranks and had opportunities to lead organizations and, and finally, I'll call it, uh, I finally got my, my Superman S on my chest, which is the senior <laughs> VP role, uh, which is what you, what you really want, what you really work for. And then uh, having conversations where I'm negotiating with other leaders from, from you know, worldwide organizations uh, as a system integrator. And they hear Mark, M-A-R-C, Whitaker. And then I show up and I stick my hand out and the world realizes that my mother named me Marquez. That's a humbling, humbling experience. And uh, still, well, I've been able to be successful, but I don't know what to call that. And just like Brian said, I've yet to give that a name, uh, but I, I am humbled enough to be prepared for that. I get you, Brian. I know exactly what you're talking about. Wow. Wow. So it's not just the women. All right. So Dr. Dr. Urquhart, I'm yes. not sure if you heard the question. I know you had a technical issue, but share with us one or two experiences of racism that you've personally, personally experienced in your career. You know, I've, I really have asked myself that a lot. Like when, when have you actually experienced that throughout your entire career? And I definitely can relate to, I think, what um, Marcus was talking about. You know, you're having a name that's not, um, well, people can attach your color to it. And then when you actually show up, they see who you are. There's a little, it's a little, little shock there. But um, for me, it, it has been the one, one chance that really, one um, instance that really comes to mind was when I um, applied for a position and I didn't get the position. And then so, you know, for me, if I am not able to, say, be hired for a certain position, I want to follow up and say, well, tell me what can I do next time around? And the person could not pinpoint one thing that I could do. Instead, they danced all around it and started talking about sports and other things. So I followed up again, say, please tell me, because I never did get an answer. So then the person wanted to meet outside of work. And then I followed up again because I knew that it was, an, it was a lie. And after all of my years of working in corporate America, I know the perception of African-American men. So I know that I must code switch whenever I enter those doors. I cannot show my anger or my, my, you know, my grief or anything. You know, I have to be professional. There's different rules of engagement for us as it is other people. So I was really shocked when someone did say he is, he was disruptive. So really it was forced on this person to do a 360 review of me. The 360 review came back with glaring comments of everyone that have worked with me throughout my career yet, yet, this person stood firm 
on one opinion. So that told me right there that data doesn't matter. Because in your mind, you had in your mind, from the moment you met me, how you felt about me. And then you stacked the interview panel with someone who made a very embarrassing comment in front of a guest speaker a couple of weeks later about me. So, you know, I'm just, I'm sitting there and I'm going through all this with, you know, very calm, very calm demeanor and everything. But I made it known that that's what happened. I had had to make it known. And people don't really grasp the, the toll it takes on someone. You know, you have to walk around all the time. Like, I can handle it. I can handle it. It's okay. No, it's not okay. It's it's not okay. But um, as I as I told this person, and I tell many people, I said one of my favorite quotes by Maya Angelou: "When someone tells you who they are, you better listen to them." Because now I knew. Well, I knew who this person was. And well, let me let me take a step back. No, I didn't. Many people had told me, <laughs> but I give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, I don't. I like to um, get to know people for myself. Right. And, and, and then form my own opinion based on that. So when you show your true colors, you know, it's like, you know, I know how to how to deal with you. I know how to maneuver. But I also must keep I always keep in my mind that you can't let no one do something to provoke you to act in a certain way, because I think there was certain things that were said and done to try to get me to act out of character. And that I, I would never, never do that. It's never it's not even me. So, you know, that that was just a, a total huge display of, of ignorance and quite frankly, it still sticks with me to this day. It wow. still sticks with me to this day. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, <clears throat> it does. It takes a toll on you. It does. You have to wear the the face, right? You have to yeah. smile and grin and bear it. And, and, you know, sometimes you do have to call it out, but you have to do it in a certain manner. Right. You have to make sure that you're still professional, mm-hmm. that you're still taking the high road. Thank you, each of you, for sharing those experiences. So Talent Innovation did an in-depth study titled Being Black in Corporate America and found that 65% of Black professionals felt both that they have to work harder to advance and that it's harder for Black employees to advance, while only 16% of white professionals agreed with those statements, which further shows that many white professionals do not realize how different the workplace is for black professionals and how much harder it is for them. So tell me, what is one of the worst stereotypes that you've dealt with at work and how did you deal with it? And I'll start back with Brian. Yeah, um, Dr. Urquhart mentioned, uh, the managers talking to them about sports. Uh, one of when I first started working, the the my, not my manager but his manager would would not talk to me about anything other than professional football. <laughs> and I would go to his office to talk about my career, and it would always turn to professional football. And then I realized that he saw he saw a black man that was interested in at athletics because I, I was, but I was also interested in my in my career. And that was that was difficult. Um, there's and and, and kind of going back to the discrimination part. I know you didn't ask this, but instead of big discrimination, 
instances that you see, the things that wear you down are the little teeny ones that happen all the time. We're going to go there. We're going to go there. Okay. Well, I'll stop there. <laughs> we are going to go there. But, but also, you know, I've also had some issues with, I, I went to North Carolina Central University School of Law and my colleagues, all my colleagues went to UVA, Michigan, you know, Notre Dame. And, and to be honest, they looked down on HBCU, especially HBCU uh, law school. They, they felt that the only reason why I went there is because I couldn't go anywhere else. So I had to, you have to earn, I had to earn my respect by outdoing them at, at, at our job to let them know that, that I could do it regardless of where I went. So, so that, that's one of the major ones as well. So the whole, the whole, you're not of the right pedigree. Right. <clears throat> okay. Dr. Dr. Wright. I, I'm, I'm reminded of, um, really quickly here, I'm reminded of a, a, an interview. Uh, well, actually for my dissertation, I interviewed uh, one of my colleagues. He's still, still superintendent. Uh, when you apply for superintendencies, doctorate degrees are not required. You know, they'll put it, they'll even put it on the, on the documentation. You know, you do not have to have a doctorate. You should have superintendent certification, blah, blah, blah. Well, uh, one of the people that I interviewed who was a practicing superintendent said, William, you know, need you to print this in your study. Uh, for black folks, doctorate preferred does not mean doctorate preferred. It means doctorate required. Wow. Uh, if you look across, uh, there's 115 of us, it's public information, you can look. Uh, there are 115 superintendents in the state of North Carolina, about 2025 20, now. Uh, in my study in 2011, there are only 10 of us, but now there are about 25 African-American superintendents. Every single one of the African-American superintendents uh, has a doctorate degree. Uh, there probably are about, I would say, 20 or so uh, non-African-American people who, uh, who do not have the degree. And, and degrees alone don't make it, but it's just a way of, of, uh, of unleveling the playing field. Um, and so, uh, of course, I, I understood that before I really got into seriously applying for and being considered for superintendencies, um, I had to get the doctorate. And in my case, uh, I actually had to leave the state. Um, I could not get a job here uh, as superintendent, um, even though I had all of the experience and I was working in a, in a large uh, district at the time as an assistant superintendent. I had to leave the state because no one would give me an opportunity. Uh, and, and a lot of my white colleagues with a lot less experience got jobs first. And I mean, that's okay. I mean, we have to do those things, but, but that's just another example of the way uh, the, the playing field is unleveled as opposed to being leveled. Absolutely. It goes back to that 65% who have to work that's right. to advance. That's right. That's right. Wow. Okay. Marcus. Worst theory. Uh, Dr. Wright, you are so you're so correct. Um, I'll tell you, I won multiple awards um, in engineering and in sales, and uh, promotions never came. Um, finally, um, a headhunter called me one day and said, "Hey, listen, we, we're calling you because uh, you've been recognized by Microsoft, and so we have a we have a, a value added reseller uh, that." 
has been struggling to create a, a business, a, a Microsoft business within their organization. And we'd like to introduce you, introduce you to him. Um, I met that individual, I turned that business around. We had amazing success, but to become what I thought I was capable of becoming, which was a group president, I had to go to Miami, Florida. So I had to leave North Carolina, maintain a home in North Carolina, but I would actually start my month in Miami, Florida. Uh, the next week I would go to Naperville, Illinois, and then I would go to Port Washington, New York, and then I would actually go to Austin, Texas. Uh, just to have that opportunity to be a senior VP. Now, from an academic standpoint, not only did I have a degree in computer science, a degree in electrical engineering, but an MBA, and I had to do post-grad studies just to be able to play. Um, and, and there's this perception that African-Americans are not serious, are not as qualified, or don't have the desire. Uh, I'll tell you that over the last 10 years, I've been turning on the lights and turning them off. Uh, I usually average about 3,000 hours a year. And so I'm typically pumping out a year and a half every year that my peers do. Uh, that performance is there. Um, it's absolutely true uh, that as a perception and pay, uh, I guess what's helped me out over the years is that as a senior executive, as an officer, you get to see the pay. And so when you get to see what people are, are, are making and what, what percentages are, yes, you can have a different conversation. Absolutely. I like that. You're absolutely right. You get to start to see it and you start to see the disparities. Thank you so much. Dr. Urquhart. Um, yeah, so I think I agree with really what everyone has said, but um, I haven't traveled as much as Marcus, but what he was saying about... Um, you know, just having to go that that extra mile just to get that that recognition and you know being the only minority in your profession and whenever you go into a conference room or even into a classroom uh, quite frankly um, I've had students tell me you know I'm in graduate school now and you're the first African-American professor I've ever had wow. so um, I, I've just had those type of experiences where it seems like that perception is that either you're not qualified or someone gave you a handout in order to get here. Um, and, and then just, just once again, you know, that, that stereotype of just being, you know, angry and, and, and just angry, upset, frustrated easily. Um, I had one manager, I remember early in my career in which I must say, you know, just starting out in my career, I, I really did not have the courage nor the awareness that I have now. Um, but just starting out, I recall just meeting all my objectives and the manager said, but well, we need you to be more aggressive. So I was, I was really thrown, thrown back by that. So fast forward, um, roughly 11 years later, that same thing was said to me and I was ready. I was ready. And I said, I had to set this person down, this manager. And I said, I will need you to understand that I don't have the political capital that you have to be able to walk into a room, bang on a table and be more aggressive. Wow. Do not try to turn me into something that I'm not. Measure me based on my performance, not my personality, because 
I'm a professional. And I can tell he didn't really um, feel too comfortable with me saying that, but it really felt very good to finally be able to defend myself against people telling me to behave a certain way. So really the first moment I do that, then you got me. Cause then I'm that angry man that you've always heard about and seen about in movies and everything. But you know, I'm like, don't turn me into something that I'm not because you may not like what you get. So don't do that. Don't try to do that. Wow. I love what you said about, we don't have the capital. Say that again. We don't have the capital. We don't have the political capital the political to go capital. Room and bang you. on the table and yell. The political capital. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That, that spoke volumes. Thank you so much. So as of late, with all of the tragedy that has taken place and still continues to take place, we face this big wake-up call as a nation. And now certain terms have become even more prevalent. We have systemic racism. We have microaggressions white privilege, and ally slash allyship, just to name a few of the terms that people are starting to talk even more about. I want to talk about two of those terms with you. The first is microaggression. And Brian, you, you kind of started this way. So the definition of microaggression is a comment or action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a member of a marginalized group, such as a racial minority. Behavior or speech that is characterized by such comments or actions. For example, someone clutching their purse when a person of color walks by. For me personally, as a black woman, I've heard, you're very articulate compared to what? Or wow, you are pretty smart compared to what? So here are different examples of microaggression. Have you experienced microaggression as a black man in the workplace? And I would love for you to share. <laughs> I know you have. I know there's several because you're laughing. But, but share with us some of the microaggressions. Give us an example. Give us an example of a microaggression that, that you've had in the workplace. Brian? When I, when I started getting my promotions and moving from legal analyst to manager and then director of those managers, I, I remember at the coffee, at the coffee center, and an editor is just looked at me with his mouth open and he just shook his head, didn't say any words, just shook his head. This is like right after the announcement, like, I cannot believe they gave a job to this black man. <laughs> so that, that, that spoke volumes. I've also had people tell me in a complimentary way that I was surprisingly intelligent and effective. And, and they used the word surprisingly. <laughs> and, thought, and thought they were complimenting me. I couldn't. I couldn't believe it. And then, <laughs> and then uh, one one other quick example, and and I think this was a microaggression because the way they said it. I was I was working with this team, and we were trying to figure out. It was at the end of the year. We were trying to figure out when could we have our next meeting. It was in December. So someone said, "Well, we have to. You know, we can't meet during Christmas break." And then someone said, "Yeah." And then there's Hanukkah. And then the third person said. Yeah, and there's also Kwanzaa. And then he looked at me and said, what is Kwanzaa anyway? That way he looked at me and he asked that question. 
And the room got quiet, and I, I was frustrated. I didn't know what to say, but I looked at him, and I told him that Kwanzaa is the holiday when black people get together and figure out how to kill white people. <laughs> <laughs> and at first, at first, I was scared. I said, did I really say that? Because I was really mad, but then people started laughing, so it went over pretty well. But those are, those are some of those microaggressions that happen. I mean, those are some of the big ones, but they, they happen almost every day. Yes, yes. Dr. Wright. Can you imagine the fraternity with that guy? No, no. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, um, you know, I, I could think of enough probably to feel the rest of the time. I certainly won't do that. Um, I, the, the biggest example and the, probably the most prevalent example I can give you is, um, and I didn't dress up like these brothers tonight. I missed the memo. I, I wish I had. But um, if I leave my house right now, today, Superintendent, been one for eight years, and I've got, I have on a school shirt, as you all can see. So if I go into any store, um, someone will approach me inevitably, and they will assume that I'm a coach. That's, that's what I get here. You, you basketball coach or football coach or whatever, and then, uh, and I used not to, I used to play along. I'm an educator and not, and my wife kind of said, dude, you need to tell them what you do. So. Uh, now I start saying, you know, now I'm the school superintendent. Wow, that's the first reaction I get. Um, and then inevitably they will ask me where I went to school. And so I'll take them through the chain. I, you know, went, did undergraduate work in North Carolina Central, don't have a degree from there. And then I'll say my degrees are from North Carolina Wesleyan College, which is a PWI. And I have two degrees from North Carolina State. And then there's almost this relief. Oh, okay. Well, you must be, as you all said, articulate, or you must be okay, or uh, you must have actually done some work. Uh, the disappointing thing about that for me is that I do not have a degree that I can throw in their face from an HBCU. Uh, but I do believe that some of the doors that I've been able to walk through uh, have to do with where I went to school. I really do believe that. It's not, doesn't make, you know, the most valuable education I got of those institutions I named was at North Carolina Central. I worked harder. Um, I had more experiences that I relate to every day. Um, however, the, the degrees from North Carolina State are valued more in my profession. So, I believe it. I believe it. So, so that's what I get all the time, you know, football coach or something. You can't possibly be an administrator. Or something. Right. You have to be a coach. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Marcus. Dr. Wright, uh, I understand that. You know, so so often uh, when someone sees me out, they immediately think I'm a pastor. Okay. But from a microaggression That's standpoint. That's what I get when I put on a suit, brother. <laughs> <laughs> That's it is, it's, right. <laughs> and, and I'll tell you, I stopped talking about sports at work uh, in 2008, in 2008, I stopped talking about sports. Uh, and, and it was because I realized that I liked Marcus and I realized that sports uh, was not, was not going to allow me to have the platform that I would like uh, within my career because people would, they like to subject you to that. Um, and so I don't even I don't even have conversations about sports inside of the building. 
Uh, I think it, it, it deflects away from what I'm there for. So I don't have that conversation. Um, you know, I'll tell you uh, what, what I saw one day, this is probably a couple of years ago, probably 2018 or so. And, and I'm, I'm about 6'3", uh, 220. Uh, I did play outside linebacker in college. So I used to be much bigger. Uh, my bias as a young man allowed me to go to East Carolina. My personal choice, I believe, is North Carolina Central because I actually love it there. Um, but I did choose East Carolina and Chapel Hill for, for post-grad. So, but, but here's what happened, uh, situation. And this is, this is what I call how so, so often in corporate America, we are divided and then conquered. Um, someone comes into my office because they didn't receive the, the merit increase that they expected. Uh, this, this guy maybe in his early, early mid-20s, he's coming to my office, Caucasian gentleman, to have a conversation with me because he's upset with what his raise was. Now, remember, I'm not his direct manager, nor am I his manager's manager. And so, but he's there to have this conversation. He's talking to me as if uh, I worked for him because he was upset. Uh, he ended the conversation when I did not give him what he liked by identifying a much lighter African-American as being the standard. Wow. And so. How bold. How, how bold, but it goes to show, you know, so often some people will say, they, they, they look at credentials, the success, and you, you see those little things. Now, within the context of the conversation, there was nothing I could have wrote that person up for. Right. Okay. He scheduled it during my office hours. There should be time available for every senior executive to have one-on-ones with their staff. Uh, he was well within his right to have a skip level. He was well within his right because he's a member of the organization and nothing that he said was, was wrong. But within the context of what he said and, the term, and how he said it, we all knew exactly what he meant. And that, that happens so often uh, when they're stacking the deck um, with, with, with people. If I can use one more second, I want to talk about there's no way I could be or would have had the success that I have had without my allies. Uh, I'll tell you that the allies that I have would never appreciate being called that. Wait, we're going there. We're going there. Wait, we're going okay. there. We're going there. That's next. That is next. Okay. Literally next. <laughs> okay, Dr. Urquhart. Yeah, so I guess the one thing that has been said to me repeatedly throughout my career is that I dress very nice. And due to I dress nice and I must live in a certain part of town. And, you know, um, came to North Carolina in 2002 and started working here in 2003. And that was mentioned to me then, it's been mentioned to me you know, years later. And I really didn't understand the, the demographics of the area that I was in. And why would someone say that? I mean, yeah, you, you dress nice. And then once again, someone said it, I think a couple of years ago, and I'm like, well, you know, it's just how I was raised. You know, I have to look the part because I know how, what are you, what are you expecting? the guy with like baggy pants and whatever and those type of things. So, you know, those 
those little slide comments are actually said several times. I've been said several times throughout my career, and I, I, you know, feel like I'm, I'm, I'm setting a standard. And you know, once they open that door, that is an opportunity for me to really like welcome them in and just have a conversation with them about that. Hey, you know, well, yes, I dress nice, but if I dress another way, you shouldn't treat me differently. You know, we have other people who look like me around here who do not dress like this, but yet they're still qualified. So it's just those conversations that, you know, I use those opportunities to jumpstart those conversations because now you've opened the door up for that. And I have to educate you on whether you're going to listen to it or not. You've opened that door and now I'm going to have that conversation with you because you must be um, careful. I want you to think before you say certain things like that. Yes. Think before you speak. <laughs> so Marcus started leading us into this next term that I want to, that I want to discuss. And that's allyship. One definition of allyship is a journey of authentically supporting individuals and communities who have been marginalized or overlooked to ally is to take intentional action, like listening, learning and uplifting those around you to ensure all voices are heard and respected. I read an ex excerpt from a book written by Sonia Renee Taylor titled, The Body is Not an Apology. She says in her book, many believe that erasing or ignoring our differences is allyship. No, ignoring difference does not change society, nor does it change the experiences non-normative bodies must navigate to survive. Rendering difference invisible validates the notion that there are parts of us that should be ignored, hidden, or minimized, leaving in place the unspoken idea that difference is the problem and not the approach to dealing with difference. So I want to talk about allyship. What does allyship look to you, look like to you? Because there's passive allyship, there's a lot of talk. And then there's active allyship, where there's actually action. So I want to hear from you. What does allyship look like to you, Brian? You know, I've um, I've experienced several uh, allies in my career at, at where I am now. And um, initially, my my best ally was my first ally, and and she became my ally before I even knew I needed one or she was one. She just started she she became a, a manager and then um she one day she said i'm a fan of your work and i said like, okay whatever that means and then next thing i knew i started getting opportunities to serve on different groups and and she would she would mention my name and i think the important thing in in defining an ally is, is someone that is aware that you are are suffering from a, a, a unfair bias and um and understand how to pull out your strengths and, and help you succeed in where you are. Not somewhat now, 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 um, ever since the events that have happened, the social injustice that has happened here, uh, everybody wants to be an ally, but they just want to be an ally. It's not like they, they have a specific plan or they, they uh, know exactly what to do. They just want to feel bad for what's going on and, and ask you if you're okay. And that's not a, that's not a very, uh, effective ally in my mind. The effective ally is someone that really sets back, trying to understand what you're going through, realizes that that there's some unfair bias going on there, and then figure out how to help you 
overcome that. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Wright, allyship, what does it look like to you? Uh, first of all, in, in my experience, um, I have had people that defined as allies uh, of all walks of life. Um, uh, some of the opportunities that I got uh, did not come from me. So, uh, you know, and, and that you, you could consider that to be uh, allyship to a certain degree. But uh, I, I think to, it, it's a little bit more than that. It is um, a person who, and a true ally is a person who doesn't just look at me for the stuff that I have and make a decision to be supportive. But it's also a person that'll look at somebody like me that may not have the opportunity. It looks like me that may not have had the opportunities that I have, and they're still willing to support that person because they've earned the right to try. And so, you know, for, for me, um, you know, I, I, I'm at the end of my career, so to speak, and I've been doing this a while. Um, it's easy to be my ally because, you know, I've, I've progressed up the ranks. But what are you going to do for that teacher who aspires to be an assistant principal who then aspires to be? Um, and 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 why are you doing it? So, you know, an ally is someone that is willing to do it because it's the right thing and not because it's popular or it's the right time or or it is the present time, as, as Brian just said, you know, it, it's popular to be an ally right now, but what are you going to do six months from now or six months ago? What did you do? You know, did you, did you seek out people uh, to help them become better because they, uh, they earned it as opposed to, well, we got to check this box. You know, we got to interview three people this time because, we need three people of color to check the boxes off. That, you know, that's not an ally. That's that's somebody trying to uh, meet a quota. So, uh, allies are people that 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 do it in spite of that that seek out uh, because it is the right thing. That's, what I think. that's that's so good. That was so good. In spite of, they do it in spite of, and that's that's. I love what you said about what are you going to do six months from now. When all the hype, when everything starts to kind of settle down, what are you going to do six months from now? Or what did you do six months ago? So that that's that spoke volumes to me. Marcus, you wanted to start talking about allyship. <laughs> the reason why is because when um, the gentleman came to my office uh, to to report his grievance, um, I'm, I'm, I need an ally. Uh, n- number one, um, I'm all about performance. I mean, I am a three P type of person. And those three P's are people, process, and performance. Uh, if given a choice, uh, because I like to create a, a fair playing field, I'm leaning on those. Uh, simply because I am also an ally. Uh, I want to present as many opportunities as possible in a non-biased way. And uh, by utilizing those three things, I can accomplish my goal. Uh, I learned that early on. Um, My early promotions came because there were people who were willing to take risk. And I'm talking about real risk with saying that, hey, are we going to base this on people, process, and performance? And we're going to let you run. Uh, 
if you want to work longer than everyone else, you want to do more than everyone else, uh, go get it. And that was perfect for me because, hey, I came from the Marine Corps. Hey, we, if it take 18 hours to do it, guess what? We'll do it for 24. So I came in with that philosophy as a, you know, from being 17. So it didn't bother me to work that hard or to do things faster and quicker or create my own processes. It didn't bother me. I, I, I was, I came from an environment where that was actually required. So my, my, the allies that I look at are, are individuals who will reset the table. Uh, I, I've had multiple companies call me, peers call me from over the years who say, hey, you know, would you be willing to talk to this person in my company? We're looking at bringing in this minority or, or we're looking at making these changes to the business. Uh, did you remember we, we, we met you, blah, 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 you know, just passed in the airport several years ago. Would you talk to John? And we, and we talked about it. And one thing I consistently say to individuals when we talk about changing our transformation within their culture, uh, within their environment, is that find the people who were the most disruptive before this happened and invite them to the table. And you can actually solve your problems fairly quickly. Wow. And, and, and then once we have that conversation, um, I immediately have a, a discussion around why it's important. So here's what we're, I think we're missing sometimes. Right now, it's because it's the right thing to do. But organizations are focused on business. And I always make this, converse, this, this comment. If your end product serves 12.6% of the population and your leadership is not, does not provide you a lens into a 12% portion of your business, then your opportunity for loss as it, as it applies to top line revenue and net income is the reason why you should have these policies in your organization and why they should be sustainable. You should have succession planning and you should be focusing long-term. That's where we had to change the conversation. We can actually utilize what's currently happening to identify and change it. So that's what, that's what happens now. So a lot of my allies, they taught me early that, hey, I'll give you the opportunity because you worked your, your, your backside off, but I can only put the game in play. Once the game is in play, you got to win the race. And that's all I look for. Wow. wow. That's good. You said a mouthful there, I tell you. Um, Dr. Urquhart. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> well, Dr. Wright, it, it said really resonated with me um, in that, you may have something going on right now in the moment, but six months from now, will you have that same energy that you have right now? Mm-hmm. And for most of my allies, which I know that for a fact that there's no way I would be where I'm at today without them, they had that energy 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And many of them did not look like me. But that's why when people, when I look at the situation now with social unrest, and I, I talked to several leaders about it, and they, you know, we have these conversations and it comes up where, well, it's going to take time. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It takes courage. It doesn't take time. It takes courage. Oh, that's so good. You don't have the courage, but you're choosing, you're choosing comfort over courage. So that's the problem. Because I've seen people who do not look like me, the snap of a finger, if they want diversity, if they want inclusion, it happens. It happens. That's so good. It's not about time. It's about courage. Yeah. So that, that energy, you know, for me, 
you must be showing a, a trend line of 10, 15 years from now, because people, they may make, probably want people to think they're dumb, but no, no, no. <laughs> Everyone is aware of what's been going on. The problem is, or the situation now, you don't have sports to distract you. You don't have nothing else. We're in a pandemic. You're glued to the TV like everyone else. There are no distractions. Ooh, that's so good. Oh my gosh, that's so good. That's so good. I mean, I'm just thinking about everything that you just said. It's not about time. It takes courage. It takes courage to have those conversations. And it also takes courage to hear and listen to what people are saying and then do the action afterwards. All right, so we're going to end this with this question here. So if we look at diversity and inclusion, as a result of the unspeakable events that have taken place over the last few months, and as I said before, still continue to happen, we are seeing companies get vocal. We are seeing companies actually say Black Lives Matter. We are seeing them launch even more diversity and inclusion programs. And they're even digging deep into their pockets to support the cause. So if we look at diversity, diver, diversity and inclusion for a moment, not even looking at the definition, I view diversity in its simplest forms as creating an environment where we have a well-balanced mix of people from different races, backgrounds, and gender. Whereas inclusion, I view as ensuring that all people in that environment not only have a place at the table, but they have an equal voice at the table. And so we're gonna end this tonight with this question. And it's really a two-part question. Is what we're doing now, is it enough? Because some would say, you got what you wanted, the flags are coming down, the statues are coming down, even Aunt Jemima is coming off the shelves. And the list goes on and on and on. We see it. We see all of these different things happening. But is it enough? And if not, in your own opinion, as leaders, how do we make it better? How do we invoke real change? If you agree that it's enough, I would love to hear you elaborate on that. Because I do believe as Black men in leadership, you all have an opportunity to reach back and help mentor and sponsor others. Is it enough? Have so, we done enough, Brian? No, it's not enough. I mean, it's just the beginning. It's it's um right now, just talking about it is 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 uh something that hasn't happened in my 28 years at the company that I'm with. And um and it's surprising to me that it's surprising to them that there is bias and systemic uh, racism. I was thinking, you guys are perpetrating it. How'd you, how'd you not know it was there? But anyway, it's, it's not enough. Um, and, and what we need to do as leaders to, uh, to make sure that change happens and make sure that it continues and it is enough is to keep on them, which is an unfair burden. Um, I, I'm very active in our, we have an ERG in my group. Um, I'm very active in that group. Uh, it's an employee resources group that uh, that that deals with African Americans or, or represents African Americans and talks about our issues. They've my company has called on us to help them make the change, which I was glad to do the first couple of weeks, and then my real job, my day job, came up, and 
is is exhausting, but it's work that that we have to continue to do because, like William, like Dr. Wright said earlier, you know, they they can check off a box and think that it's okay, but just recognizing that there's an issue is is not um, is not the final step. And you made an important distinction because at first we were calling it diversity and inclusion, then we started changing it to inclusion and diversity because you can have all the, the the people there, but if they're not in, involved in the process, um, it's, it's just window dressing. So, so we have to be involved and it's, it's not fair, but we have to do it. That's good. It's not fair, but we have to do it. Dr. Wright, is it enough? Have we done enough? Uh, absolutely or not. Uh, absolutely not. Tweet that i sent out, uh, cause everybody wanted me to have these comments, you know, when you become a, a school superintendent, they want you to have an opinion about everything. So here, here's my tweet really quickly, and then I want to add one thing and, and let these experts uh, follow me. Uh, here's, my, here's my tweet. As a 53-year-old African-American male, I've been advocating through my daily actions for an even place. Even as leaders, it's just different for us. Rarely have I asked for help. Now I am. We all must address the injustices that we see every day, every time. And so for me, here's really the deal. Um, we can use the word racism. Um, we should use the word racism. There is systemic racism in our country, no question about that. But the minute we use that six letter word, people retreat into their corner. I choose to have people try, I try to uh, have people focus on fixing injustice and inequality, because that's really what we need. But at the end of the day, what we want, what all of us want, uh, the four of us on the four men on this panel, uh, at some level, we got an opportunity that we're busting our butts to make sure uh, we earned that opportunity and exceeded that opportunity. I can guarantee in everybody's case, you know, we, we got a, some, somebody to put us in the door and then we busted our butt to exceed that opportunity. Well, how many more of us never get that opportunity? It's my job as an African-American male to mentor and promote and all of that. But we need more than that because we don't control the majority of opportunities. I mean, that's, that's just the reality. We're, we're getting better. We, we own more stuff. We're doing more things, uh, but we don't control it all. So we have to have help. And that about when I'm talking about addressing, addressing those injustices and those inequities. Mm -hmm. We've always had qualified black folks. Yes. And just started in the last 10 or 15 years or the last 10 or 15 minutes. And we've always needed help uh, from us, of all, because a lot of times we don't help ourselves. Uh, but then we've also we also have always needed help from those who have the ability to. And um, any movement, any, even the current movement, any future movement, any past movement, has only been as valuable as the ability of people to look at injustices and inequities and then make a decision to do something about it and not waver in that. So that's what that's we need. Good. I love that tweet. I might have to follow you on Twitter. <laughs> okay. All right. 
Good. Very, very powerful and profound. Thank you so much for sharing that. Marcus, is it enough? Have we done enough? No, we haven't. Uh, but this is a unique time, and that's a unique question. And here's why. No one has ever defined what enough looks like and what a fair and balanced environment looks like. Um, be, because of that, um, we, we often, when I'm, when I'm having conversations about inclusion, equality, fairness, um, the game, the, you know, the playing field being fair for all participants, um, I'm always having a conversation about a fair share, a fair shake, um, looking at percentages. Uh, often don't like to do this, but often this is usually one of the few ways to get up to, to provide opportunities is it, to percentages. You know, how, what percentage of customers do you serve? Um, who ultimately do, you, do your customers serve? And does your organization resemble who your final port, product portfolio represents? Yes. Uh, and so I don't think we've answered that question as an environment. And what I mean by environment, I mean the United States. We haven't answered that question here, whether it be Republican or Democrat or whatever. We haven't answered the question about what does fair truly look like uh, within the corporate environment. Uh, I think right now we have an opportunity to have those conversations. Um, uh, Kennedy and, and, and Wright, I, that's how I approach it. Um, I hear what you guys say. I try to approach it in that way because I can get people out of the corner. Uh, the moment... You know, you know, I don't stand up at work. And I'm pretty sure you guys don't do much standing up either. And, and we don't stand up because we don't want to we don't want people to to retreat. We, want, we don't want that none. You know, you know we, we want to we want to have an intellectual conversation. And so, you know, we, we don't press up. We, we want to invite in. And so I found that having that conversation about the relationship between the, the portfolio and the end customer and what that relationship looks like and having an organization that represents that properly is what I found to be the, the, the least threatening way to have fair and balanced playing fields. Mm. Make sure the, organiza the organization, the composition of the organization matches the composition of the customer base. Exactly, and the product portfolio. Okay. And then if you can operate in that way uh, within a matrix organization, you can staff and you can do certain things to remove these conversations because so much that we're talking about around racism is really competition. I mean, it's, it's really, in a lot of cases, it's competition. We are competing for a limited number of prime positions. And uh, it's normal if someone realizes that, hey, I can actually protect my flank by hiring person X versus person Z, it only builds my credibility and my ability to stay in my position of power. And so understanding that you have to, in my opinion, navigate it differently so that you can actually pull people away from the boundaries into the fray and have conversations about how do you really have, you know, culture transformation. And that's, that's work for me. Um, that's work when I speak to people who are interested in making those changes uh, because six, I, I can tell you right now, corporately, 
the money that organizations have spent on whatever organizations, it was already in the budget to be spent. Okay. That money was already there. Those decisions, all they did was made additional decisions around marketing and allocation of dollars. Six months from now, that may not be the case. I'll go a little bit better than that. Three months from now, after November, the game could change. Wow, it, so it will change. Wow, that's so good. Thank you. Dr. Urquhart, sir, yeah. yeah. I, is it enough? Yeah. No, it's, 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 it's not enough. Um, <clears throat> definitely more mentorship. We definitely need that to reach out. Um, we have a lot of kids who are, they're seeing everything that's transpiring right before their face. And my biggest concern is they don't understand how to handle these type of situations. Mm. I do not think everyone is intended to march. Some people are intended to have a different type of role in a social justice movement. Um, so I, I think that, that that mentorship, you know, any, every opportunity that I get with a student, um, I have these type of conversations because number one, I never know where that student is coming from. If a student is 18 years old, that's 18 years of their life, they have been programmed to be a certain way. I only have four months, four to five months in a classroom to develop a relationship with that student. So I try to build a relationship for mentorship as well as as a professor, just to try and meet them where they at, to give them that sense of hope, that sense of belief, the sense that I'm not here to fail you, I'm here to teach you and I'm gonna work with you. But you have an obligation as well. On the corporate side, um, I, I have these conversations with a lot of leaders, and my conversations usually go that, hey, you need to take that chance that to interview a very diverse set of candidates. You know that your team is 95, 95% of your team doesn't look like me. So there's nothing that's stopping you from going to the HBCU, or if you're working through a firm, telling that firm, go back to the drawing board. We need a more diverse set of candidates. Yep. Once that candidate come in, take a chance. Someone took a chance on everyone in this call, on everyone is in corporate America. Someone invested, someone took a chance on you. So when you bring someone new in, you know who your team, you know what the makeup of your team is. You know the personalities on your team. Mentor that new person that comes in. Because nine times out of 10, that person may not feel comfortable as well. And in corporate America, quite frankly, is some people first time dealing with people who are not like them. So there is that uneasiness that's in that environment. But as a leader, it's up to you to manage that. Stop picking easy things to do. Pick the more difficult things to do. And sometimes people there, they are afraid of that. And as one person put it in a meeting, I was in a couple of years ago, she said, diversity invited us to the party. Inclusion is gonna get us on the dance floor. You know, that, that resonates with me so much because as I, when I'm in the classroom talking to students and, you know, they're multitasking on their phones and everything else. And I try to bridge the conversation by saying, I want you guys to be at the table and not on the menu. Because the, the people who are developing that software, you're on the menu. Yep. I want you to be at the table. You have a stake in this game. Absolutely. That's so good. That's so good. This has been phenomenal, phenomenal discussion. And I do believe that each and every one of us are walking away with a deeper understanding of the challenges 
uh, that the black male faces and we're able to do something about it. Um, thank you each and every one of you for um, agreeing to collaborate with me on this panel discussion. Now I'm going to shift it over to questions, question and answer uh, quickly. And if anyone who is on the Zoom, if you have a question, please drop it in the Q&A section that's at the bottom of your Zoom screen. And again, if it's for a specific panelist, please make sure you put the panelist's name. If it's for any of anyone that's on the panel, then just uh, simply type in your question. Okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and that is open now. If there are any attendees on the panel who has a question for the panelists, please drop those there and we will answer those. While they are doing that, um, I, I think that the discussion you know, has, has been great. Uh, really quick, while they, while they are dropping their questions in there, um, anyone can answer this. What advice would you give to a young black male? Say it's a teacher just starting out. Say it is a black male in tech support and they're trying to figure out well, how do I get out of tech support? How do I get to that next level? Uh, it could be any, any area. They're coming in and they're, they're trying to figure it out. And I know that I've had experiences and still continue to have experiences where young black women and men reach out and say, you know, how did you get where you are today? You know, what do I need to do? And we all know that there's no magic bullet. Like there's not one thing that we can say that's gonna solve it all and they'll be able to continue to rise to the next level. But if you had to pick one piece of advice while they're dropping their questions here, what would that be? And anyone can take it. I would say, oh, I was gonna say, um, stop looking for other people to validate you. You're already validated. You have the intellectual capital. That's how you made it that far. Continue to be humble. Push ahead. Do not let your emotions drive you. Oh, do not let your emotions drive you all the time, but really believe in yourself and find, find mentors, um, mentors of all different walks of life, all different colors, because life is, is tough. We're full without dealing with that. It's tough. And you're going to need someone to confide in. It's someone who, can really lift you up in those moments where you feel like, you know, the world is on your shoulder. You cannot get through this by yourself. You just can't. As my father once told me, a man of a thousand steps do not start at 999. He starts at one, then two. He takes it one day at a time. And no man is on an island by himself. You, so you're gonna need other people to navigate this, this world. That's good. Anyone else wanna jump in on that? Yeah, I was, I was, I agree with the mentor, finding a mentor, but I also think that you have to come in with the realization, even though that you, you, you know yourself and you, your self-confidence, you have to come in knowing that, that the organization may look differently upon you because of your race. And, 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 um, it, if you're aware of that and you see it happen, you, you can react to it better than if you come in coldly thinking that you can do everything everybody else can do, put in the same amount of work. I mean, Mr. Whitaker talked about how much he had to work harder than everybody else. And 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 know that when when your colleagues are gone, you and the work's not done, you need to keep you need to keep going. And it's not it's not fair. 
Not. But uh, it, it has to happen. It has to happen. Dr. Wright, did you want to add anything? Or Marcus, either one of you wanted to add anything there? I think you just said it all. Uh, number one, it's not fair. It is, it is not fair. First, first, you know, when, when I'm mentoring, you know, so I have a different concept around mentoring someone in high school and then someone in college. Uh, when I'm meeting with someone in college, I have this clear conversation around preparation. Are you prepared? First, competition. Are you aware that, hey, we, we are competing? Um, you know, that we don't say it, but every year you get a one-year contract with your company. And they get four quarters to decide if they want to keep you. Uh, you can be gone tomorrow. Um, but also, because of competition, preparation. And are you prepared for an environment that's unfair and biased against you for things that were truly outside of your control and truly that they didn't experience? And so understanding that and then build yourself, you know, use that intellectual uh, collateral that you do have, which is your reputation, to build sponsorship. Um, you, you're going to need that silent majority who can help you, who can actually speak for you when you're not there. And identify that on day one. Not day two. Day one is about relationships. Day two is about work. Good. You better have some people who, who can speak for you. And so that's what, I, that's what I tell young people. Really go in there with a plan. Be prepared. Understand it's not fair. It will be biased. Uh, you're going to work harder than everyone else. Relationships first, work second, and you'll be okay. I like that. I like that. Dr. Wright, we don't, we don't have any questions coming in, so I'll let you go ahead and, and wrap us up here. Everything that these three brothers said, and, and I want to add one thing, um, and then I'll give a quick example. Uh, we need to take every opportunity we can to dispel the myth. That's, that's, that's what I tell young leaders, young aspiring leaders. So good. You get work to dispel that myth because they assume that we're less educated, that we're not opportunists, you know. So uh, take opportunity to, to dispel the myth. Um, my best example of this, um, I was a new assistant principal in a new county. And um, principal walks in and says, okay, it's time for graduation. I need somebody to... Uh, read the names of graduation. Well, you know, my background was I used to be a radio announcer. So I volunteered. And then, you know, it's a predominantly white school. And he says, well, uh, I, I need you to do security. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm reading names. <laughs> reading names. And, um, and so as the process went, you know, I went to the practices and you know, wrote down the ironically challenging names or whatever I needed to do. And then uh, when we got to the graduation and it, it went over without a hitch and um, superintendent was there. And so uh, let's just say three months later, I was in the district. So uh, I, I think sometimes we have to uh, take opportunities to dispel the myth. The, the myth was not have been articulate enough to, to, to get through that exercise without issues. I mean, yet, um, I, I think it helped propel me to the next level. And so 
we have to do that. You know, when, when there are leadership opportunities in our organization, you know, if I'm a, uh, if I'm an entry level employee and there's an opportunity for a, a management training opportunity, I need to be there and I need from the class and I need to make sure that I'm read on the material, things of that nature, because that is going to dispel the myth more so than, uh, than, than many other things that we do. You know, instead of getting mad and frustrated because we don't get the opportunity. That that was good. <laughs> that was good. And good is an understatement. Take the opportunity to dispel the myth. I love it. I love it. That that was so good to me right there. Prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. Prove them wrong. It's not fair that we have to do it, but it's okay. We We still have to do it. So... Thank you. I don't see any questions coming in. So you must have covered a lot of content and detail. So thank you so much for, for being agreeing to be a part of this panel tonight. I really appreciate each and every one of you for taking time out of your busy schedules and, and just feeding the people. I thank you so much for that. I thank everyone for tuning in. If you have not shared this yet, maybe you wanted to wait to get through the content to see what we were talking about and what it was all about, go ahead and share now because now you know what we were talking about and it's something that people need to hear. So please, if you are on social media, go share this video out. Again, I thank our panelists for being here with us this evening. Um, and I want to leave you with this, because regardless of race, color, creed, male or female, we all have a role to play if we want to invoke real change. And so I challenge each and every one of you to go out and, and invoke real change. It is part of your responsibility to do that. And so with that said, I'm going to ask my panelists to go ahead and drop off and we're going to come back. I'm going to go ahead and stop the streaming. But thank you so much to everyone who tuned in this evening. I really appreciate you doing that and supporting this platform. I will be back because there's still more discussion to be had. So I think up next is probably going to be some diversity and inclusion Decision makers, not quite sure yet, but be on the lookout for what we have next. We may do a part two and have the men come back. I know the ladies, the women, we're already talking about doing a part two uh, because there's still so much that we didn't talk about. There's still so much conversation to be had. And so I'm excited to say that the conversation and the discussions continue. So thank you. And with that said, have a wonderful evening, each and every one of you.